What a joy it is to be with you today in Atlanta. Homecoming week for me. Five years I lived in the apartment right over there, those double windows. For five years I was there, but I only lived there during the week. On the weekends I would get on my donkey and I would travel to one of the parishes of the metropolis of Atlanta. Always by car. Miami, Florida, 11 hours drive. New Orleans, eight hours drive. Bluff City, Tennessee, to the north, six and a half hours. Wilmington, North Carolina, the farthest to the east, seven hours. 28,000 miles a year just from that room to some church and back. I didn't commute like the rest of you to work every day. When they said that there's a wreck on 85, 95, 285, I just chuckled and I continued to sleep in my bed. <laughs> because I only had 50 steps from my bed to my office on the second floor here. And so it's homecoming for me. First Sunday that I have served you and we have celebrated the divine liturgy together, me being a hierarch. Who knew? I sure didn't. I was in New Orleans. I was doing just fine being the priest there at the cathedral. I had been there four months. And Metropolitan Alexis told me, you'll be there five, six, ten years. I said, great. Four months into the project, I get this magical call from the Archdiocese in New York. It's Vasiliki, the Archbishop's secretary. Father Grigorios, this is Vasiliki. Vasiliki, how are you? I'm doing fine. Can you be in New York tomorrow? I said, no. Immediately, the archbishop never just calls a priest without his hierarch knowing that he's going to call. I had no clue what was going on, but I better make a call immediately after I told her no to Atlanta and find out. I called. Metropolitan Alexios was here. He says, Father Gregorius, how is New Orleans? I says, I'm not sure. He says, what do you mean? The archbishop called. Oh, oh. <laughs> he probably wants to talk to you about the Episcopal vacancy in the Carpatho-Russian church. I said, what? <laughs> he said, yes. I mean, they're thinking, you know, Metropolitan Nicholas passed away. They're about one year and a half out now. And they're trying to find a replacement hierarch. And your name has come up. I said, Great. I've not been a priest even five years yet, your eminence. There's a requirement. You have to be a priest at least five years because before you can become a bishop. I was like four years and ten months. And he said, don't worry. By the time they figure out what they want to do and fill out the paperwork, it will be five plus. <laughs> he was right. And so here I was in New Orleans trying to figure out what had just happened to me. A blue lightning bolt hit me at my desk. I didn't tell the archbishop's secretary the reason I said no. I used the excuse that, you know, uh, I says, you know, I have a parish here with 250 families. I need some notice to travel. Yes, yes, we don't want short notice. Maybe we'll find another date. I didn't tell her that my sister was coming that afternoon to visit me in New Orleans. If I was going to New York, I was wrecking her visit to New Orleans and my vacation with my sister. 
And so I never told her that. One day when I go up there, I'll say, this is why I said no, just so she knows. But slowly, the process moved along. No one knew. Metropolitan Alexis, Archbishop Dimitrios, myself, and the Carpatho-Russian Chancellor. Four people knew about this. And then it was time for me to go and see what this is all about. So I did go to New York. I met with the Archbishop. He told me this is the situation in the Carpatho-Russian Church. They have no one that is capable of serving as their hierarch. And so because they are part of the ecumenical patriarchate, and Archbishop Dimitrios is the exarch of the ecumenical patriarchate here in America, they went to him and said, can you help us? And they found someone. That Metropolitan Alexios put my name in the pot. I can thank him for this. But I went to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, a little town of 20,000 people. I was in Atlanta, five and a half million people. I went to New Orleans, 650,000. Then I went to Johnstown, 20,000. I'm a big fish there. I mean, really. (laughs) A town that's made of coal miners, steel factory workers, all the plants are closed, all the factory, all the mines are closed. And so Johnstown has gone from 50,000 people to 20, losing about 1,000 people per year in the county that it's located in. It's a depressed area. They have a beautiful cathedral there. Next to it, they have the chancellery, and next to it, they have a house for the bishop. This diocese provides a house for all their clergy. In any community go, there's a house very close to the church that the church maintains, pays the utilities on, and the priest and his family live there. They buy their own food, but that's what they get. Their salary is lower. Some of them have second jobs. Some of the communities only have 25 people in them. Some of them are on the verge of closing. One community has eight. 70-year-olds. But this is where I have landed. Johnstown, very close to Pittsburgh, about an hour and 15 minutes away. The fact that growing up in Charlotte, at the age of six, I didn't have a baseball team to pull for like you guys here had in Atlanta. I wasn't a Braves fan. I really didn't like the Washington Senators. It's sort of political for me. At six, I said, I don't like them either. But I saw a team one Saturday on TV playing in yellow uniforms with a black P on the hat. And I said, that's my team. Roberto Clemente was on that team, the Pittsburgh Pirates. And so I've been pulling for the Pirates my whole life, 50 years. Guess where God planted me? where I got to see some regular season games and I got to see game four of the playoffs against St. Louis. The bishop win the baseball. Oh, yeah, I did. (laughs) You don't know where God is going to plant you. You don't know what your life is going to be. You know what you think it's going to be, what you want it to be. You want to make God laugh? Show him your plan for your life. 
he will laugh and say, no, we're not going this way. We're going this way. I'm proof of that. We are now in the Lenten season. The Lenten season is a season of contemplation, analysis of self. Where am I spiritually? What am I doing in my relationship with God? How am I preparing for the end of my life? This is what Lent is for. To think about these matters of importance. Great matters. Your life is going to end one day. We know this. If you don't think that's going to happen, I have news for you. You will die. And they're going to bring you here. In a box. It can be a $2,000 box. It can be a $5,000 box. You can get a $10,000 box. It's a box. Get the cheapest one they got. (laughs) Don't let the funeral director work on your sympathy that Yaya, she deserves a 25K box. She does not. She doesn't want it. She's dead. We don't respect people by giving them expensive boxes to hide in. Because it's only good for a couple of hours. The priest is going to make you cry. The family's here. The psalty will make you cry. Somebody will say something in the eulogy like, wow, he was such a great man. I have never heard in my life, he was such a, ah. (laughs) Nobody ever says that. And yet, a lot of people think it. (laughs) Or for the woman, she was such a, mm, mm, mm. But in any case, that hour will end. Guys with suits with a little flower will come. If you had friends, they'll carry you out. If you didn't have friends, they pay somebody to carry you out. But in any case, you will go out into a car somewhere in the wilderness out here. There'll be a hole in the ground. They'll plant your box. They'll kick some dirt on it. They'll say a final blessing. It's done. That's it. Your body doesn't matter anymore. What matters is your soul. When you die, your soul separates from your body. We actually have a prayer in the priest's handbook that is the prayer of departure, separation of soul from body. So as soon as you die, somebody in your family needs to call the priest and say, hey, so-and-so died. Okay, let me read the prayer. He might not even have time to get there. Just do it wherever you are. But it exists. It's that important. But after that soul has departed, and we've said all the funeral stuff, the soul now has a place to wait until the final judgment. And it's either heaven or hell. There's no middle ground, folks. Please don't get seduced by anything that's out there that says that it's not a heaven or a hell. We're almost at the Christmas, at the, at the Pascha season. I guarantee you, one of the news magazines will say, is there a heaven or is there a hell? Every year they do it. To make a doubt in our mind. Why should we have a doubt? We know what we've been told by Christ. We just follow his example. He lived his life 
They convicted him. They executed him on a cross. They took him down, put him in a stone cave, closed the door, and three days later, he came back to life. But after he went into that tomb, the body was there. But where did the soul go? Went to hell. There was no way for paradise yet. We didn't have a resurrected Christ. He went down there. If you saw the movie Passion that Mel Gibson put out, there's a famous scene where he dies and you can see him going straight from his cross into the earth, into a cavernous place that's hell and the devil is there and the devil is screaming because the Lord has arrived and he is getting ready to kick your butt. He's going to crush your concept of death, your concept of evil. He's going to show a new existence for humanity. And he does. We know this. And he then came, visited his colleagues, his students, his disciples for 40 days. Then he ascended into heaven. They saw him going up. It wasn't like he disappeared overnight. They saw it with their own eyes. So he went to hell after he died and he went to heaven. Two places for us. Heaven or hell. Judgment day is going to come. If you were here Friday night, I'm sorry. Because you heard part of this already. But heck, marketing says you got to hear it seven times to get it. So I'll sit here and do it six more times and then you'll get it. When we die, judgment day will come. We'll all be in front of Jesus Christ. He's the only judge. He's the Supreme Court. There is no other judge, no other court. Period. If you're judging people, you're wrong. Stop. Because he tells us, the way you judge people is the way I'm going to judge people. You. We always judge the guy next door to us harsher than if we were doing the same thing. You know this. You're lighter on yourself. He's going to judge you the way you would judge the other guy, not yourself. All of us will be in front of Jesus Christ. Judgment day. There have been 108 billion people on the planet, they say, National Geographic. 8 billion living now. That's 115 billion people, if it happens today, all in front of Jesus Christ for judgment. How much time do you think you have in front of Jesus Christ to plead your case if 115 billion people are in front of him? Quicker than a blink of an eye, it's over for you. You're not going to be able to bring your defense attorney. You're just not. You're not going to be able to bring a bunch of boxes to have evidence. Look what I did in my life. He will see you and know immediately who you are And what state you are in spiritually. Instantaneous. And then it's either the kingdom or hell. Kingdom is God, Panagia, Christ, the good angels, the saints, light, warmth, no pain, no sorrow, no suffering. Just good stuff. Hymns of joy. The Braves winning every year. The Falcons finally getting it. Nothing but joy in heaven. Or you can end up in hell where there's no God, no Christ, no Panagia, 
No good angels, only bad ones. No saints. It's dark. It's cold. There's pain, sorrow, suffering, hunger, tears. Forever. Not like you can get a pass and come out. Forever. And what's this forever? Somebody asked me one time. What's forever, Father Gregorios? I said, well, this is forever. I'm almost done. There's a pile of sand. One mile high, one mile wide, one mile long. Imagine the pile of sand. It's pretty big. And there's this little bird. And this little bird goes to the pile of sand and takes one grain. And it flies one mile in that direction and drops the grain of sand. And then it comes back and it gets another pile, another grain and goes back another mile and drops the second one. Back, forth, back, forth, a lot of sand, mile high, mile wide, mile deep, back and forth. Finally, finally, the little bird has moved all the grains of sand to the second pile. Is that eternity? Answer me. No. What's eternity? That's just the beginning. Hey, third pile. Move it from here, one mile over there. Back, forth, forever. It never ends. Where you end up is where you're going to be forever. Make it the right place. Just do it. You know what you have to do. You know what the church teaches us. It teaches us to pray. If you're not praying, start today. It preaches us and teaches us to read scripture. If you're not, start today. You're not coming to church very regular? Start today. If you're not receiving the Eucharist frequently, like every week, Start today. You're not giving to those people in need? Start today. These are the things that Christ and the church through his disciples have taught us that we need to do. So that we have a fighting chance for paradise. No guarantees. I got no contracts here for you today. My only hope is that the threshold for paradise is about right here. So I can jump over. Maybe step over. But if that wall is about 12 feet, I am in so much trouble, I'll never get over. Figure out where you are and make it better. Don't wait till the last minute. Oh, I'm young. I can take care of this later. Really? If I go into the Sunday school and ask the teenagers, how many of you know someone who died in school while you were there? Almost all of them will raise their hand. How many people go to work and don't come back? Their spouses are waiting for them at 5.30 and they don't see them and they're waiting and they're waiting and then they see on the news, oh my God, he's been shot, he's dead. Or she's been killed in a car accident. How many? Do you want me to recall the stories that we have? Newtown in Connecticut? Come on. Get ready today. Don't wait. 
Don't wait. You might go to sleep and not wake up. That happens too. It'll be in the obituaries. She died restfully in her sleep. Okay, the sleep was restful. Let's hope she was ready for paradise or hell. Judgment is coming. Not to scare you. I'm not the priest of fear and scaring. I am one who just wants us all to get there. The odds are most of us will not. And don't think for a minute bishops, priests, deacons, and anybody else have a better shot at it. In fact, we have a worse shot at it than you do. Mr. Cleomenes over here, I saw you from the beginning, my friend. He is going to be responsible for his soul at Judgment Day. His soul. You're going to be responsible for your soul. All of you, to your soul. The priest, however, and the bishops as an extension, is responsible for everyone he encountered in his ministry. So I encountered, guess what? I'm now responsible for you. This might be the only time you ever see me. Who knows what God is preparing for us. But I'm responsible now. Father Paul has been a priest 30 years. Father Chris has been a priest seven or eight years. He's a classmate of mine, by the way. We have a new deacon now, Deacon Stephen. He's going to be working in Columbus, Georgia, back where he came from as a deacon. We're responsible for all the souls we encounter. Man, if we mess it up, God is going to take us down. And you imagine what it's like if you go to hell and you're a priest or a bishop. Of course, the devil knows this. He's going to have extra games for us. It's going to be hotter, more painful, or maybe colder and very dark. Whatever it is, it will be. I would have stopped talking about 10 minutes ago, but I was trained by Metropolitan Alexis as the Eirokitics, the itinerant preacher and confessor of the metropolis of Atlanta. My job was to talk nonstop until someone looked at their watch to give me the signal it was time. No one has turned down that I have noticed, so I will continue to talk a little bit longer. Today, the ACC tournament is going to finish. Georgia Tech is not there. I'm sorry for all of you Georgia Tech people. The Tar Heels are not there. I'm weeping very much. I'm a Tar Heel. But Duke University somehow squeaked it the other night, and they're going to get there and probably win it today, although Virginia has a pretty good team, but I don't think they're as good as Duke in a championship of an ACC tournament. Duke's been there 31 times and walked away with 20 of them. But all of this doesn't matter. At 6 o'clock tonight, the pairings for the national tournament will be announced. The real season of basketball begins next Thursday if you're a normal team, Tuesday if you're one of those teams struggling to get in to the 64 tournament. This is where the real fun starts. This is where March Madness goes through the maddest it can be. And you know what's sad? It falls during Lent for us. Friday night, Pizza Hut's going to have the all-meat-lovers pizza on special. (laughs) And absolutely none of us can call them. Dominoes. I can't tell you how many times. It was the first weekend of the tournament. I was sitting over here 
the metropolis had shut down for the weekend. I wasn't going to go anywhere. I'm watching basketball, and the commercial would come on, and I go, who would know if I ordered? <laughs> I said, God would know. So I never ordered. I went in the kitchen and ate lentils. Fuck yes. <laughs> At halftime of game number whatever it was that day that I had been watching. Spring is coming, my friends. You have many flowers in Atlanta. I saw them coming in on the plane. The Bradford pears have essentially taken over the forest. And close up, I saw plenty of forsythia. And I saw some flowering quinces. These are all spring flowers letting us know. In Atlanta, spring has come. In Johnstown, it's still the dead of winter. Nothing has come out. Nothing green has even ventured to try to come out. As I was leaving, the 18 inches of snow and ice was finally making a little path around my front door, and some of the daffodils had stuck out the tips. But it's supposed to snow tomorrow, and probably they're going to stay just like that. But at some point, maybe May, we will go directly into summer and skip spring. I know you guys had fun when 285 turned into an ice skating rink. We watched it on TV in the north, and people were laughing. Look at those southerners. They don't know how to drive. (laughs) You're from the south, aren't you? I am. I served in Atlanta for five years. Don't laugh at my people. Oh, and by the way, all those cars and trucks that I saw on the side of the road in Johnstown were not driven by southerners. They were driven by you Yankees. You don't know how to drive either. It's killing them that I'm a southerner. But they're getting to love me now. (laughs) Because I'm loving them back. Know that I love you, that I care for you, I pray for you. I want to hear good things about the cathedral here. And I'm hearing good things. Continue to do well. I'm seeing these little kids that I saw in summer camp for multiple seasons, now growing up, going off to college, getting educations, and getting married. This is a good thing. And they're staying in the church, which means you did your job as adults, parents, godparents, grandparents, Sunday school teachers, youth directors, youth workers. You did your work and you kept the kids in the church. Maybe not all of them, but most of them. And the ones that are missing, go and find them. Grab them by the ear, like they would do in the Greek school, and bring them back. Show them that you love them. Don't let them get lost. The society will suck them out. They'll go to college and not be orthodox anymore. You've got to do your work. Don't wait for the church to step up. One, two, three, or ten priests cannot save everyone. All of us have a responsibility. All of us. All of us have to have our eyes on everyone that's young, like little Sophia. I said she's a prospective member. You know, she's not a member yet. She becomes a member when she's baptized. And probably that day she's going to make her first stewardship contribution to the church. How to do, Bill? That child is going to come, and at the baptism they're going to take a few locks of her hair and drop them in the baptismal font, and they have fully paid up their dues for the year. If they had a wallet, we would have found a way to take a buck out. 
but they don't have a wallet. And so everywhere I go, I talk about stewardship too. Please support your church. If you don't support your church, your church will close. It might not close in 5, 10, 20 years, 30 years. But what a tragedy it would be if this wasn't an Orthodox church anymore and somebody else was in here doing something that we wouldn't recognize. Be supportive of the community, everything it does, and jump in and work. Don't leave everything to one or two or ten or twenty people. Everybody put in something. You'll feel better, I promise you. Is my time up yet? Thank you, sir. As I move to the second half of my sermon... Bring that dinner. <laughs> you know, the, fir- the last Sunday the Father Paul was in Raleigh, North Carolina, I went there. Metropolitan says, I need you to go to Raleigh and sort of fill in until I get a new priest. And that Sunday, two priests were kicked out. Father Paul and his assistant, Rupus. They weren't really kicked out. Came to something bigger. He came here to you. You can thank me. I recommended him to your cathedral. You're laughing. I know the truth. <laughs> well, the ball.